Welcome to the New Work Revolution podcast on NewWorkRevolution.com. Take your business leadership to the next level and join the revolution. Here's your host, Brandon Allen. All right. Thank you for joining us this week on the New Work Revolution podcast. Just wanted to give you some context for today's podcast episode. And typically, when I do an interview, I do a one-time sit-down, we go through it, and it's done. Now, today's episode with Neil Insko from Get Equity is a little different than that. I had recorded it in kind of five separate sessions, and I intended it to initially to release it as a series, but as I listened through the audios and I kind of worked through the content, I realized that just for the sake of continuity and context, when it comes to understanding finances as a business owner and and understanding some of the implications of finance in your world as a business owner, I really felt like it it made more sense to just have all the content in one sitting so that you could digest it and kind of go through that. So as you listen to this particular audio, you're going to hear some breaks of, hey, goodbye, hey, welcome back to the show, that kind of thing going on in the audio. And when you hear that, that's why. One of the things that I want to make you aware of is that as you listen to this, if you feel like, hey, Neil is really diving into uh, some things that I feel like are really pertinent to me and things that I need help with, you can go to getequity.com, and that's equity with an I, dot com, and they have a 30-minute consultation that you can take advantage of when you fill out like a two-minute assessment. So I'm going to encourage you, look, look, if there's some things in here that you hear that are relevant to you, that you feel like, hey, I want to, I want to get some more information in, on that, I want to dive into it, visit their page and check that out. Neil is a long-time financial services expert. He's been doing this for a long time. He's got a really not, you know, he's got a no nonsense. This is how it is type approach that I think a lot of you guys will like. So sit back, get ready. We've got over an hour, which is probably one of the longer podcasts I've done in a long time of content on your business's finances, which is so important in this day and age to really control cash flow and all that good stuff. So check that out. If you have questions, again, you can go to newworkrevolution.com, go to the show notes. I'll have some of this information there as well, but feel free to hit me up with any questions that you have about the show. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please share it with others and get this content in their hands as well. Sit back and enjoy. All right, so I want to welcome everyone to the New Work Revolution podcast. This is your host, Brandon Allen. Today, I've got a guest. I don't always have a guest, but today I do. And I have none other than the handsome as well as successful Neil Insko. Now, Neil is the uh, partner in Get Equity. Neil has 30 years of business experience working with startups, growth companies, expansion companies. He helps companies transition. He has a lot of experience in the financial realm as well as the business realm. And so I was introduced to Neil uh, a few months ago, maybe even a year ago, gosh, it's been a while, uh, by a mutual friend, uh, I guess if you can call him that, and um, so that's how I came to know Neil, talked with Neil, it was very apparent to me that Neil knew his stuff, I wanted to have Neil on the podcast because I felt like he could really offer 
the business owners that we work with, just some really great information in some different areas. So we're going to hear a lot from Neil. We're going to talk about a number of different topics. And so, uh, Neil, what did I miss? Did I leave anything out here? No, Brandon, you you didn't leave anything out, and I appreciate uh, having you on uh, on the call, the podcast, and uh, you're doing some great stuff. I love what you're doing. Awesome, man. All right. Well, let's talk about. Look, this is a this is a, a topic that everyone gets excited about: um, saving taxes. So, talk to me about just you know, kind of your philosophy for a business owner on how they minimize their tax exposure. Well, there's really three things that I think about when I think about tax reduction. Uh, the first thing is that taxes are eroding our capital base. So the example is that if I give you a dollar today and that dollar doubles every year for the next 20 years, so that would be one, two, four, six, eight, etc. what's that dollar worth in the 21st year if you don't pay any tax on it? Well, it's worth a million a million forty eight thousand is what it's worth, but if you tax that same dollar forty uh, percent every year, it's worth a little less than thirteen thousand dollars in the twenty first year. So in general, taxes are eroding our capital base. The second thing is is that there is a lot of what I call low hanging fruit uh, that are missed, which are tax deductions that are are there for business owners to look at on their uh, they're 1120, they're 1120S, or if they're a sole proprietorship on the Schedule C, there are probably 58 to 60 areas that you, you could be looking at uh, that the accountant sometimes looks at and, and, can, and can make sure that you take, but oftentimes they don't. So you, you, could, you as a business owner need to be really proactive to be able to look at those areas of the tax return and, and reduce or eliminate as much tax as possible. Same thing on your 1040. So the combination of all those is the low-hanging fruit I always tell clients to look at. And then the third thing is, is that when your surplus gets to a point where you are in a position where you have a surplus in your business, how do we use that to reduce or eliminate taxes on that business income? Because every dollar that we spend in a business now, from a taxable standpoint, if you do the math, really cost a dollar sixty-six at a forty percent tax bracket. So we've got to earn a dollar sixty-six to net a dollar out. So we want to look at every possible deduction that we can take and using our surplus. And what we do as a firm is we'll sit down with a business owner and we'll do what's called the loss test. So Brandon, you're you're a business owner. Has your CPA ever sat down with you and asked you to take a test to determine how much unnecessary income tax you're paying? Yeah, absolutely. We have done that, actually. Well, there you go. So that loss test is pretty amazing. And what it can do is it can really help a business owner see the tax savings that they have at the end of the year. And then we look at all the different ways that we can reduce taxes on that surplus and create wealth for the business owner. Nice. Nice. I love that. I love that. So when it comes to, I mean, just fundamentally, uh, what what is the thought process that a lot of business owners get wrong when it comes to just taxes and and how to approach their taxes? What do you see business owners screwing up with? Well, the first thing that I see is that if, if you're talking about the stages of business ownership, so you have startup growth and and really what I call plateau or getting to the end, and those. 
those seg- those segments can last 20 years, they can last five years, they can last you know 40 years. It depends. Or multi generational. And from the beginning, what the first the person that has to do when they start a company is they really have to create a cash flow compartmentalization process and have a separate tax account so that that account can actually have money in it that is the taxes that would be paid on the gain. And as the business grows and becomes more profitable, they'll continue to expand and use that. So they'll know by the end of the year exactly how much they're going to pay in tax on the income that they've received. Now, this is usually in addition to a W-2 wage. So let's say you know, you're a business owner making a half million dollars and your business is $200,000 to run a year. There's 300000 needed a hundred to live on, you're taking a W two wage for a hundred thousand, paying the tax on it, and now you have a surplus of of a hundred a couple hundred thousand dollars in addition to that. A lot of times I'll see business owners, you know, saying, Oh God, where am I going to get the money to go do that? Well that should actually be part of your plan starting January first, so that when you get to November, you can say, Hey, I know exactly what I made, I know what's in my tax account, and if I would choose, I can pay the taxes. And I can go ahead and pay off my house or send my kid to college or something else. Or I can look at tax deductions. And so I see them making that mistake at all three of those stages, at startup stage, through the growth stage, and then and even at the end. So I also believe that it's important for us to look at the implication of taxes ahead of time. So when we work with our transition clients, we look at what the transition would look like the day that we sit down to talk about it from a tax standpoint that it would look like if that was the day they actually sold it. So there's no surprises from a tax standpoint of what it is that, that's coming up. I just think you need to plan ahead of time and have the availability to do your tax planning October through December rather than scrambling in between January and April. Yeah. What's the worst advice that you hear business owners get around <laughs> tax savings and accounting in general? Well, you know, I have a little bit of a prejudice about that, and and so I hope that doesn't come through in this. But uh, the one thing that always concerns me, probably sticks out the most, and I've had the most complaints about, is what we call the end game, which means that the business starts to really make money and has profit, and the CPA just says, well, you know, go set up a SEP or just go set up a a 401k or a profit sharing and and throw the money in there, and and you know, we'll you'll save uh, whatever your your tax rate is on that money and you'll get to put all that money away. What they aren't telling them is that's not really a tax deduction. That's a tax deferral. So at some point in time in the future, that plan now is going to grow and it's going to grow tax tax deductible. So they say tax deferred and then it's going to be taxable when it comes out and they're going to force you to take it out at, uh, at 70 and a half. And now your small amount of tax you would have paid on the money you've accumulated each year is now three to four times that. And so when you look at it, you go, oh, my God, holy crap, look at all the taxes that I have. You know, it's kind of like art. You know, you got it on the wall, but when you take it down to sell it, you realize, wow, what is it really worth? And that's probably the biggest thing that I find that business owners need to stop and have some um, one or two other potential options just besides that. You're making money, great, let's put it away, but now we've created even a bigger tax problem. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about entity structure a little bit. I run into people from time to time that they've been in business for a significant period of time, 15, 20, sometimes even 30 years, and they're a sole proprietor. And they don't have any sort of 
formalized entity structure in their business or in their, they're, they're in the wrong entity structure. And I get a lot of people who say, well, Brandon, it's just not worth the hassle um, to switch or to change. I don't want to go through that. Um, what do you say to, to people that, that talk like that? What, what is your advice to them? Well, I think the reason why they do that is because of several – well, there's several reasons. One is that is that I think they think they need an attorney to set it up, and they don't. I think that they think it's too expensive, and it's not. And I think that they think that it's too difficult to do, and it's not. And you know, we set up entities for our clients all the time because the number one reason why you want an entity and not be a sole proprietor partner is asset protection, period. Because if you're, and this is a perfect example, I have a client uh, two years now when I first met him, very successful dentist, making uh, a million five a year, uh, profit margin was exceptional for a dentist, lives in a community that's uh, uh, very uh, well-to-do and, and they can afford dental care, and he he's making around a half a million dollars a year, doing really well. And when I met him, he had no corporation. He'd been in business 10 years. No corporation. He had built his building. It had. It was in his name alone. He, everything he owned was in his name. And if he was in a car accident or he was sued or there was a problem of any kind, uh, he was exposed to creditors, including the IRS. And so that is the main reason why you want an entity. Now, there are some people out there also that say you don't want an entity until you make so much money. Well, when you are a sole proprietor, you also have self-employment tax, and up to the Social Security limit of 118,005 with the 2017 regs, uh, you're going to pay the maximum. And if you're a startup business, just by being an S corp and using part of it as dividend, you can save a substantial amount of tax and protect yourself. So I'm just a big asset protection guy. I think your businesses should be in uh, in corporations or LLCs, depending upon whether they're professional or not, and the state you live in. And I think that your real uh, real estate properties should be in LLCs or LLPs or those kinds of entities because they absolutely can be protected, uh, particularly because of the charging order statute and how it is in your state. Now, I live in the People's Republic of California, and uh, and so I have the worst asset protection in the world. The trial lawyers run this state. Uh, the best states that have great asset protection for entities are Arizona. Alaska, uh, Delaware, uh, Nevada, Florida, and Texas. I would have to say those are the, probably the top five. I think that's how many ever six that I named off. So I think you absolutely need an entity structure if you're making a substantial amount of money. Plus, there are tax breaks with those, depending upon which ones yeah. they are. The one thing you don't want to do with an entity is you don't want to own some property that's going to appreciate inside of, say, a C corporation. Now, way back when, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of the young professionals – they were uh, because of the C corp had some benefits. They started their businesses in those C corps, and when those businesses go to be sold, then you have a double taxation, or you own a piece of real estate in there, or you have some sort of a uh, possible, uh, let's say, uh, uh, other asset uh, that's business, a trademark uh, that maybe is your business. And a lot of people are branding themselves these days, and that goodwill could be worth something. You certainly don't want them in a C corp, but C corp has its own. Uh, really great things that you can do with it, just depending upon where you are. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Neil, final thoughts on saving taxes. What, what, what did we miss? What haven't we talked about 
that you feel like is just vital to business owners minimizing their tax exposure now and in the future? Well, I think the very first thing that you have to do is you have to be proactive in looking for possible tax benefits for yourself of all kinds. And oftentimes our tax preparers, enrolled agents and CPAs, even the bookkeepers, they're not all that proactive in understanding all of them. And with Regulation 230 several years ago where it meant that you could say that your tax advisor told you to do it and you weren't on the hook, now you are on the hook and so are they. So they're very skittish about making recommendations. I oftentimes hear, I actually heard a lot, people say, well, I never get any kind of uh, real advice from my uh, tax advisor telling me the things that I should do. And the problem with that is, is that you've got to be proactive. You've got to go to them and say, look, let's figure out what it is that we need to do. And you've got to do a little bit of research. I know business owners are really busy. We're wearing two or three hats a day and chief bottle washer as well. But the reality of it is, is that you've got to be proactive in really either finding a CPA or working with your CPA or enrolled agent to try to find the most tax deductions that are going to work for you. Also, you need to be looking at things that be proactive that may be changed in the future. So something might be legal today to do and the law may change. You've got to be looking for it uh, in the future so that you can change uh, and course correct and look for other tax deductions to take its place. Yeah. All right. I love it. I love it. Planning and being proactive is so key. Uh, I know business owners are busy, but that is so important. Um, I know just sitting down with my accountant, uh, the several times that I did last year, um, really, I, I mean, we just created a lot of great strategies to minimize tax. There's a lot of great things that business owners can do that uh, they're they're just not paying attention to. So, Neil, how do people get uh, how do people get in touch with you if they want more information or need some help uh, from you guys? Well, our our company is uh, Equity, and that's Equity with an I E Q U I T I and GetEquity.com is our webpage. Uh, you can reach me uh, either on my cell at 858-344-5110 or at the office. Our 800 number is 800-845-2895. My, nice. e- my email is nealneal at GetEquity, G-E-T-E-Q-U-I-T-I.com. Awesome. All right. Well, guys. Go out, be proactive, take a look at how you can minimize your tax exposure. Uh, it's never too late to, to start working on that process. Neil, thank you for being on today, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. Okay, thank you, Brent. Take care. All right, so I want to welcome everyone to the New Work Revolution podcast. This is Brandon Allen. And today I've got a familiar guest. It's a guest that we've had on recently, uh, Neil Insko from, uh, from Equity. In case you missed the first episode on saving tax, make sure you go check that out. Uh, but Neil has worked with business owners and been in the financial realm for 30-plus years. He's got a lot of knowledge that he imparts on business owners to really empower their financial situation and, and really help them uh, keep more of what they make and, and uh, take some of the stress off that a lot of business owners have around their finances. So uh, today, Neil, I believe the topic of conversation is 
cash flow efficiency. Um, so talk to us. What do we need to know? Uh, what do you feel like is the most important thing that business owners overlook when it comes to being efficient with their cash flow? Well, I think the most important thing is that every successful business owner and entrepreneur you know, has to have the ability to know where their cash is going and how to manage it and when it's available to them when they need it to be able to expand their business and to create profit. And that's a hard thing for all of us because, you know, cash flow is king, right, in business. Yep. And cash flow is happiness. It helps us all sleep at night. Uh, and the problem is, is that how do we maintain a good cash flow position and how do we know where our cash is? That is probably the number one thing that I hear from business owners about their businesses. And it is really simple to break down where your money is going and how to track it uh, for your benefit. It just, it really is. It only takes about 15 to 20 minutes if you have the right system. Uh, it's simple and easy. And, uh, it, you know, without breaking a sweat, you can do it in that time period. But that's the one thing that I see that really needs to be implemented in every business. Okay. So you, uh, you had mentioned to me uh, this concept of the cash flow compartmentalization plan. Talk to, to, you know, talk to my listeners about what that is. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it's simple. It's not like a P&L at all. And the idea is that we want to make it simple so we can, you know, we can see what's going on with our business from a cash flow standpoint. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a special about different businesses that were up and coming, one in Orange County where this guy had a helicopter company. And every morning he would come to work and his assistant would hand him two things, what he had in, you know, payables and, and what he had in receivables. And that is how he managed his business. Well, even though that's pretty simple, I'm sure there was more to the business than that. At least he had some system. And, you know, we basically have this basic system, all of us. You know, we've got cash in the bank, and we've maybe projected what our business is going to uh, need on a monthly or a quarterly or annual basis. But we really need to go a little further than that. So cash flow compartmentalization is exactly that. You're going to compartmentalize where your cash flow is. It's a simple Excel spreadsheet that you use where the very first line is your income for your business. So that's your gross income. The second line is wages. Wages for you, wages for your employees. The, uh, the third are business expenses in general. And, and then the fourth is whatever your surplus is. And that's it. Now, if you have a pension plan and you want to set money aside for that pension plan, you want to give tithing to the church, you want to be able to set aside money for uh, the payment of, uh, let's say, uh, your building or something like that, what you really want to do is you want to create additional categories below that, and you've always got to have a tax account there. So let's go back over that. So it, it may seem not now confusing to everybody, but it's really simple. So your first account that you have is your business account that you have all your income coming in. Out of that account, you have your payroll for you and your individual employees, and then then the third uh, thing you have is that money that's coming out of that business account for expenses, and then you have a surplus. Now, you can't take that surplus without paying tax on it, so you create a tax account so that whatever tax rate you're in, I usually use about 30% for our clients, sometimes 40 depending upon the state, is that we'll put in that account, and then we have a surplus after that. Above that tax account would be things would be deductible. So if you're putting, say, the maximum into a 401k, 
this last year you would have put away $53,000. If you're the only individual, every month you're sticking one-twelfth of that contribution into that account. So you're compartmentalizing it so that you know exactly where the money is and at all times. It also gives you an opportunity if you want to expand. So I've got a client right now. We were talking. They're making a couple of million, and he's been putting all the money after wages back into the business for capital improvements. So he essentially has no surplus at the end of the year. It's been three years now, and he's about ready to break into another level of income. And now we're talking about we're going to tweak that cash flow compartmentalization and add another category to it so that he can start setting money aside for the things that he need. He needs. The key to this is, again, you want to be able to, by the end of the year, look at that spreadsheet and know exactly where you are so your planning is done before the end of the year, not after. Now, when people make a commitment to something like this and really stay true to it, what kind of what, what do they experience? What typically shows up in their life financially and otherwise? Well, it actually makes them realize how much money is going everywhere, right? That's the whole idea is that where's my money actually going and what do I have that's available? That's the first realization that pops up in anybody's head. Gotcha. All right. Very good. <clears throat> All right. Good deal. So talk to me about where people typically leak money the most. I mean, what if there are some things, you know, people are listening to this right now. What are some things people can do right now just to plug some leaks in, in their bucket? Well, I think the first thing is, is that you, you've got to always be looking at uh, each of your expenses and you've got to determine whether or not you can make those expenses less. Uh, and, and if I'm paying X for it today, can I pay X less for it tomorrow? And that's the first way we can give ourselves a raise. So we are, what are we paying for our insurances? What are we paying for our cell phones? What are we paying for everything in our business? And we need to say, all right, how do we reduce it or even eliminate it or consolidate it? I know a couple of years ago, you know, now our business phones aren't regular business lines anymore. They're all through uh, cell phones. And so that cost was a, a big break for a lot of business owners. You've just got to look and see what's there so that you can give yourself a raise. I mean, think about, you know, if your business generates a half a million dollars a year, a 5%, uh, you know, decrease in your overhead is a, is a significant amount over a period of time. So that's the first thing I like to see business owners do. The second thing is, is that, uh, from a cost standpoint, what are, what is, what are my, say, my fringe benefits costing me? And with uh, a number of changes that have come along, what are those benefits uh, to me and my employees that I can find a better way as my situation changes? So if your business ends up having more cash, would it be better to take your group policy and look at maybe some sort of a HSA that would go along with it or an HRA that would go along with it. And that way you're putting more money back into your business and you're saving it. And that cost is allowing you to have more capital in your pocket. Uh, are you double paying for things? What are the two or three things that you need that may be covered in one area, but not covered in another or are covered in another that uh, you're, you're doing it twice. So, you know, those things are the things that business owners ought to really look at. Our problem as business owners is we're busy people. We got our head down all the time or we're looking at the next opportunity and we're not stopping and taking at least once a month to have a meeting and look at all the expenses and see what's going on. 
And the more that we can look at those things and look at where we're leaking cash, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So bringing up the fact that we are busy people, what do you feel, what's an appropriate rhythm or how, how often should people be looking at this and breaking it down? Is it weekly, monthly? What are your thoughts on that? What works well? Well, you know, if you're just the one-man show or one-woman show and it's you, you're the one that's going to have to sit down and say, all right, I'm going to stick in my calendar the uh, third Thursday of every month and I'm going to go to lunch and turn off my cell phone and have lunch and then sit somewhere where I can just look at my P&L, look at my business and look and see what I'm spending and where I'm at. Uh, you know, if you're, say, somebody who's a blogger who's doing really well and, and you're online, you got to sit down at least once a month and do that minimum. I think that if as your company grows and there are more people and if you have a personal assistant, that assistant can at least put together those kinds of things for you. So you're not spending, you know, the time to be able to put it together plus the time to look at it. If you've got one or two business owners as partners, you ought to be sitting and having at least monthly a meeting where you all talk about specifics. My partner and I, we, we have a Monday where we set aside two or three hours every Monday and we have an executive meeting with our bookkeeper and she goes over the entire uh, P&L for us each week and talks about upcoming expenses and we go through a whole you know, top to bottom, uh, front to back of exactly what we're going to need and what's going on from a cash flow standpoint, including receivables. So it just depends on, you know, really what, what detail you want to get. But I think it needs to be simple. And if you can make it simple, that's really the key. Nice. Um, any other cash flow tips? Any, anything that people should be doing that we didn't talk about? Any other tips for plugging leaks? Uh, anything else around cash flow? Well, you know, when you think of cash flow, uh, I think the key is with ca- all cash flow, and I'm thinking in terms of all stages of a business owner because I know we got a lot of different listeners coming into these podcasts, and I think you've got a little bit different situation when you're starting up versus when you're growing versus when you're, uh, you know, continuing to reach plateaus and having regular success and your business is growing. Uh, I think I think the very first thing is is that you've got to look at exactly, if you're starting up, what you're going to spend on your business in the first year. And you've got to make a projection so that you don't either overspend or end up with a shortfall. And both of those, those are important. Probably overspending is along more of the lines of what you were just asking me with a question. I think that's really key. And then in the growth phase, I think it's a matter of uh, – is there a way where you could actually set money aside to, uh, you know, put more money in your pocket by a reduction of, say, some tax issue? So as an example, if, uh, if I owned a manufacturing company or I had, say, a network marketing company where I had a product, I could actually set up a C corporation and I could drag $100,000 over there. And even though that corporation would pay the tax and I would get the money, I'm going to have it at a, a lower rate. I'm going to save probably uh, about between, say, 15 and 18, about 15 and 21 percent uh, of the money that I would take out of that corporation just by the fact that I'm, I have that ability with that kind of a business versus a service business like a dentist or, or say, a, um, a veterinarian, somebody like that, or a chiropractor. They have a little bit different situation. You know, they, they're going to get taxed at the highest rate because of the way the, the tax rates are. So you, you really need to look at 
different ways that you can set up maybe an entity or or other things to dig a little deeper where you can save as much as say fifteen you know to twenty thousand a year as a business owner. Now I had a business owner tell me the other day that wasn't a lot of money, and I said, well, compounded over a ten year period, <laughs> it's not bad. You know, just to, if you never made anything on it, and if you made five percent a year, what would it be worth? So. I'm a big believer that you know it's uh, it's it's the little things as well as the big things that you need to do that with. And then on the the very end, which is you know my business is hitting more plateaus and I'm growing, you need to really watch it even more carefully because uh, sometimes when we get to the point where there's a lot of money in businesses that nobody thinks at all about spending a you know a five hundred thousand uh, dollar ticket to market or to change or to benefit or to do something else for the business. But, you know, it's that $5,000 and $10,000 expenditures that are they really key and important that you need to look at. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, that's so interesting. And, and I think that, uh, you know, you it's funny that person said, well, that's not a lot of money. And it's not only the future, you know, opportunity cost and, and let's say compounding interest, um, but it's what's the lost opportunity of putting that to work in your business in a way that creates more value in some way. It could be a marketing plan, uh, a new employee, whatever that is. I mean, that could make a huge impact on, um, you know, w- you know what, what that person can do in the future. So it's, it's interesting when people talk like that. Look, if it's 10 or 15 grand as you're listening to this, what what would that money mean to you if you really put it to work for your business? Well, and you bring up the best point of all, which is opportunity cost lost, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, what does it cost you to be able to? We talked when we talked about taxes, what the cost is to get a buck out because of the not only expenses and the taxes. So, the issue is that opportunity cost is really key. Every dollar that you can be able to direct in the way to make your business more profitable, then it just gets you closer to where you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. All right, good deal. So cash flow strategies, this is so important. I don't know a single business owner who doesn't care about this deeply. I love the strategies and and what Neil put in place. Neil, how do people get more information about cash flow strategies from you? Well, if you want to contact us, uh, our 800 number is 800-845-2895. My extension is 102. You can go to www.com. Get Equity, and that's equity with an I, E-Q-U-I-T-I dot com. Or you can contact me directly on my cell, 858-344-5110. And my email address is neal, N-E-A-L, at getequitywithani dot com. So that's G-E-T-E-Q-U-I-T-I dot com. Awesome. So, guys, thank you for listening this week. Neil, thanks for being on the show. If you have any questions, go to newworkrevolution.com. Feel free to hit me up. If you enjoyed the show, please share it. Uh, if you haven't liked us uh, on Facebook and if you haven't uh, reviewed us on iTunes, please check that out and do so as well. So, again, thank you, Neil, for being on, and we will talk to you guys again next week. All right, so I want to welcome everyone to the New Work Revolution podcast. This is Brandon Allen, and today I have Neil Insko from Equity on the call with us today. Uh, if you missed uh, the conversation that we had around saving taxes, around cash, cash flow efficiency, make sure you go back and check those episodes out because today we are going to talk about uh, asset protection, and Neil 
Neil's background, he's worked with uh, a lot of business owners over the last 30 years. He's worked uh, in the financial realm during that time. He knows a lot about business owner finances and what business owners are faced with. And his goal is to help people be successful in that realm. I really think this topic is so important. I wanted to have him on uh, to do a series of, of of trainings with Neil uh, that you guys could kind of get a taste for uh, what being a little bit more intentional in the area of finances would look like. So, Neil, talk to us about asset protection. When, when, when you say asset protection, what does that mean? Well, you know, you're very vulnerable. Everybody's vulnerable to outside threats and creditors. And asset protection is uh, lawsuits is what everybody thinks. Uh, but a lot, but it also can be family protection, uh, insurance, or disability, or health, uh, or it also could be structures with regard to your business and how you protect your business. But you know we're all vulnerable to all kinds of outside threats, and you know you read about them all the time. Uh, I mean, I see probably you know fifteen to twenty a year where business owners and their families are just wiped out because of one lawsuit. You know everything they own cars, their business, their personal assets, their retirement funds, everything. And unfortunately, you kind of have a target on your back in this country if you make money. And 20% of this country makes uh, more than $200,000. And so if you're in so to everybody else who's below that, uh, you're somebody who makes a lot of money. And so you're really required uh, to look at how you're going to create financial security. You know, take those measures that you need to to protect what you've built. Uh, we have a very litigious society. And uh, I remember reading an article about five years ago where they, uh, they surveyed 100 people and they asked them all how they would become a millionaire and earning it was not in the top five. What do you, what do you, Brandon, what do you think the top three were? Um, gosh, I have no idea. So the, the first was lawsuit. Okay. The, the second was inheritance. And the third was lottery. Okay. And that's how they all thought they were going to be millionaires. So, <laughs> yeah, and, if you're, and, and, you know, if you're not earning, it's not even in the top five. You know, you, you just don't know what's going to happen out there. So, unfortunately, we've got to protect ourselves if we're business owners. And uh, you also have all kinds of other unforeseen problems. You know, I, I mentioned death and disability, but divorce, you know, family issues, employees, uh, and as business owners, we're exposed all the time. So when we talk about protecting our assets, we talk about we, we, there's a whole myriad of them uh, that we can talk about. But they really fall into three categories. You know, you're going to protect yourself from creditors, and you're going to, oh, which could be the IRS, by the way. You want to protect yourself from um, from death and disability. Those are really important things. Okay, got it. So what I, I mean, look, asset protection. What keeps people from really thinking about this and engaging in it at the level that they should? Well, it's never going to happen to me. You know, I'm never going to get sued. I read about it, but it, it just doesn't really, it isn't going to happen to me. And it, it's out of sight, out of mind. And I always say that, you know, it's mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. And so the idea is that people are just, it's just not touching them. And until you've talked to somebody who's ever been in a lawsuit uh, and, and looked at what happens, the time and the effort and the problems, uh, 
or been through a fam, you know, know a family that's been wiped out because of disability or, or health problems or any of those things. All those are, are things that if they don't touch you, you really don't have a frame of reference. Every, you know, we just go along every day and we don't think about it. But everything from uh, that I've talked about in this, you know, this podcast are all things that, that can happen. So what we have to do is we have to be made aware. And there are some simple things you can do. It's not like you got to spend millions of dollars on asset protection. Uh, there are just a few really simple things that you can do. Now, when you get into the area of you're looking at some pretty substantial net worth, you know, the 10 million, 20 million, 30 million and up, then you're really talking about having to look at asset protection from a whole different standpoint. And then you're talking about segregation of companies and assets and even looking at possibly using other jurisdictions, multiple jurisdictions, multiple states, and maybe even going offshore because that's something that you know you can do. And those are all legal, but you have to do them right and you have to follow the rules. So it's important uh, for us to know that it can happen to us, and it's that education and awareness that are key. Yeah, definitely. So you, you kind of touched on this a little bit about simple steps. What what are the building blocks? What are the simple building blocks for the average business owner to to protect their assets? Well, you know, the reason why you buy insurance is if your house burns down, but the chances are it usually doesn't, or that you have car insurance and, you know, you don't get in an accident or health insurance, you don't get sick. And so the premiums that we pay are for those days when that happens. And really the first step is, is that everybody should be looking at the, at least the minimum insurances they need in all areas, not only from a, a casualty uh, business standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, a uh, disability and a health standpoint. Uh, the s- second area is, is that we need to be looking at using entities to be able to uh, protect everything. There are some places, uh, some states where you can use entities for your personal real estate and some you can't. So as an example, in those states, you might think about doing that. That gives a a layer of protection. Your business should be incorporated. It should be an LLC or it should be some sort of a a structure, not a sole proprietorship and not a partnership because those things are just probably without a doubt one and two worst ways to have a business. And so, uh, it, and it's not hard to set all those things up, and it's not hard to sit down with a casualty agent and come up with that kind of protection. If you're in a particular type of business where you might be exposed, you need to look at that and how it affects you individually uh, and people around you. So I, uh, I happened to be reading an article the other day where uh, there was a uh, one of those lap band companies that uh, put in lap bands and do the, uh, uh, you, know, you know, the fat reduction yeah. surgeries. And the owner of the company lost the entire company because the associate came in and ended up cutting the wrong artery, you know, and that, I mean, it wiped it, completely wiped the business out. And that stuff happens. Now, most of us aren't surgeons with that kind of ability, but the point is even if we're running a tire and wheel shop or we're involved in an ice cream parlor or we we run a winery, the point is, is that all of that, is some specific things that we need to look at and we need to ensure for that. So that's, uh, that's the second thing. And then, then the third thing is, is you've got to make sure when you implement asset protection that you follow through with the implementation. Here's an example. Let's say uh, I'm one of these business owners that have been a sole proprietor for five or six years. I decide I'm going to be a corporation. I go to the state. I get my articles of incorporation. 
they show up, I go get a bank account, and uh, I'm a happy guy. And so what's wrong with that picture from an asset protection standpoint? Well, I have no minute book. I've not had my first minutes. I don't have bylaws. I don't have stocks certificates that were issued to me. And if you're sued, the judge essentially is going to say, hey, where's your corporate minute book? And you're going to say, what's the minute book? And he's going to throw that case out and you're going to lose because you really don't have a corporation. You just paid somebody to set one up for you. And it's not operating like a corporation. A lot of people think that that's not true when that happens, and it absolutely is. Another one is real estate. Many business owners own their building that they have their business in in real estate. That building should be in an LLC. And the reason it should is because of a charging order statute. Uh, charging order statute is what keeps the creditor from, uh, from taking that business building from you uh, and, uh, and walking off in the sunset. So there was an example of a court case in Los Angeles about 20 years ago where uh, was a rental piece of property. The individual got drunk, wandered onto the property, chipped over the pavement, landed on their head, and actually died. And the family sued him, and he owned the property personally, and he, he ended up losing the lawsuit and the property. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's exactly what happened. Well, if he had had it in an LLC, the, what would have happened is even if he <coughs> lost the lawsuit, he'd be in a position where the judge couldn't force the individual to give up the property. He could only force them to give the individual who won the lawsuit the income from the property. So anytime they made income, they would have to give it to the person who won the lawsuit uh, in order to be able to, to fulfill the, the lawsuit and, and the terms of the lawsuit. Well, if you decide you're not going to give that individual the money and you're going to spend it on the building, it's going to be taxed to somebody, and it's called phantom income. And what happens is the individual who won the lawsuit ends up with the K-1 or the essentially the owes the tax on the money but never got it. So essentially you can sit and say, all right, well, let's negotiate what you want to do here. It gives you the ability with the charging order to be able to protect your your individual asset. So it's important for us to look at how they work with the assets we have and don't get any more asset protection than you have to. For a period of about 10 years, we did a lot of offshore planning with clients and we did it through uh, the BVI. And there's some pretty amazing things you can do uh, and really protect assets. Uh, and I know that for a fact because I have a physician client who um, always told me that in a surgery he would lose somebody at some point in time, and about six years into our relationship he did, and that offshore planning uh, housed a lot of his assets, and the insurance ended up making the situation right for everybody, which is the way it should be. He shouldn't be wiped out because of a mistake. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, good deal. So in talking about asset protection then, I mean, what do you recommend, you know, if, if someone hasn't put a lot of thought into this or done this, I mean, what, what's kind of their first step? Well, the first step is, is if you own a business, you've got to protect your business. Uh, a business owner who owns a business is just like uh, a, a father, mother, and a family to take care of the children. If you're not going to protect your business, then you're exposed, just like you'd be exposed if you wouldn't take care of your family. So you've got to look at what kind of entity you have. You've got to make sure that it fits your type of business, and you have to use it to your best benefit. That's the very first thing. If you start then to own other assets, you own your home, 
you own uh, other buildings or you're uh, you're in partnership with somebody who the two of you or three of you or five of you all are involved, you ought to be looking at the entity structures of each of those and how they're positioned. Sometimes you don't need necessarily to have uh, uh, you know a lot of planning in those areas uh, other than the simple planning. You got to look at your insurances. You got to you know a lot of people say, well, if you just have really great insurance, then you don't ever really have to worry about being sued. Well, if the insurance is ten million and you lose the suit for twenty million, you got a ten million dollar problem. So the idea is that you got to look at those and see how they all interact together, and you got to not pay more than you know once for those. You don't want to double up on them. So you just have to sit down and start just with the basics. Your home, uh, how is it protected? Uh, your business, how is it protected? Uh, usually a lot of people ask me about qualified plans, so pension plans, profit sharing, defined benefit. And those are always ERISA protected. That's the Employees Retirement Insurance Securities Act. So they're usually protected from uh, lawsuits and from creditors. And I've heard the IRS possibly has penetrated one or two of them, but uh, I've never seen any of those court cases. But, you know, so you just look at each in each asset you have and you determine the best way to protect it. Okay. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So, Neil, for people who want a little bit uh, you know, more information on just asset protection and, and what that looks like, how do they get in touch with you? Well, they can reach me directly at my office. Uh, that number is 800-845-2895. The company is Equity, and that's E-Q-U-I-T-I. And our webpage is getequitywithani.com. And if they want to contact me directly, they can do so on my cell at 858 344-5110. Awesome. So, Neil, thank you again for being on the show today. I appreciate you sharing the financial wisdom. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Awesome. All right, guys. If you have any questions, go to newworkrevolution.com. Make sure you guys go to getequity.com and check out what Neil's got uh, for business owners. Uh, if you like the show, rate it in iTunes, share it on social media, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. All right, so welcome to the New Work Revolution podcast. This is Brandon Allen, and today I want to introduce uh, Neil Insko, who has been talking with us. Uh, quite a bit on various financial topics, and uh, this particular topic is so relevant because I get this question quite a bit from uh, business owners who are looking to transition out of their business. So I want to talk. I wanted to talk with Neil a little bit about business transitions and just what he's doing um, on the business transition side. And so, uh, Neil, thank you for being with us again. Well, thank you, Brandon. I appreciate it. I love what you're doing, and I love working with business owners. Awesome. So, Neil, talk to us about business transitions. I mean, I guess just so people are speaking the same language, just kind of walk through the process. What is what, what is business transitions? Well, when you talk about a transition of a business, you're talking about an exit from it, a potential sale. Uh, you're talking about a, a merger uh, or having other partners come in. Uh, you're talking about possibly selling it and then working back in it. So you're talking about what's going to happen with your business at some point in time when you're going to retire or slow down or you're going to want to sell it and move into another, say, business or another area of your life, 
um, a number of business owners sell their businesses and make a very large profit and end up turning it into nonprofits, which, by the way, is a business. So the idea is that you want to look at how you're going to transition that particular business, what the effects of it are going to be, the pre-planning that you have to do, and it's just really a matter of uh, how you're going to do it and what's the best way to do it for you. Awesome. What? Why? Uh, this seems to be a topic that um, it just really seems to stump business owners, or they're just not really sure what to do. Um, what are things that business owners need to think about well before they even think about transitioning their business? What are some of the fundamental things that need to be in place before they start that process? Well, if you can, you want to be able to have control of that process. And if you can be thinking about it pre-planning-wise 10 years before you're going to do it, then you have a much better chance of it being seamless and it gives you an opportunity then to implement that planning as things change. You also want to put together what I call the positive power of negative preparation. And that's where you're thinking in terms of what is going to happen with this transition. And you're going to look at each aspect of it and you're going to put down two or three options that could help you to guide you to getting the result that you want. And it's like anything in life. As business owners, we're really busy people. We wear multiple hats. We're driving the profit every day. We're also working with our employees. We're dealing with regulations and taxes and insurance. And we really need to sit down and have that discussion with somebody about what it is, uh, what it is we're going to do with our business. Now, that's in a perfect world. That means that you and I are sitting here and we're planning 10 years from now, we're going to start transitioning it and, and annually we get together and see where we are in our progress. That doesn't take into consideration the problems that can happen when it's an unanticipated exit or transition. So a death, a disability, a divorce, those are probably the top three unanticipated ones. Uh, another one would be economic downturn or problems that might happen that we're, you know, we'd love to transition our business, but all of those factors could pop up and rear their ugly head. So we actually should be thinking all the time what's going to happen with our business if any of those four things happen. But again, it all, it really boils down to sitting and having a conversation with somebody and talking about the type of transition you want. But in an ideal world, It'd be great to do it 10 years before. It doesn't always happen that way, uh, given the other uh, circumstances that can happen that I talked about. Absolutely. So if I'm a business owner that is either listening to this and thinking, oh, my gosh, I need to be more intentional about this because I'm not, or if I'm a business owner who maybe realizes that, hey, this transition thing is coming sooner than later, um, who are the types of people that I need on my team? Um, in order to make that transition effective? Well, I think you need a couple of people. Uh, the first person that you really need is somebody who is a consultant, who understands business owners, who can sit with you and, and explore all the transition options because uh, exploring them is where you figure out what it is you want to ultimately do. And that certainly could be a CPA. That certainly could be an attorney. Uh, that certainly could be a firm like our firm at Equity, is that we sit down and we have a conversation uh, with individuals. And what we want to do is we want to guide them to the numerous alternatives that are available to them. Because when you're guided and you can see the options, 
you know, you basically become empowered so that you now have the knowledge, you know, to make the right choice for you as a business owner. Absolutely. So that's the very first thing you have to do. And, and then you have to look at the options within the options. So again, as I mentioned, am I going to sell it and am I going to stay on for a period of time? Am I going to maintain some ownership or am I going to sell it outright? Am I going to uh, bring on partners? Am I going to merge with another company? You know, what is it that's going to happen? And then you have to look at the effects on you of the, those situations. So if you're at retirement age, it's completely different than if you're going to end up selling the business and then uh, maybe working back and helping younger people uh, in that business to grow it, such as, say, employees or do something like an ESOP and then eventually phase yourself out. So you want to be able to sit down with somebody. You want to look at the options and alternatives, and then you want to make the best choice that you can. What are some of the – give me some of the biggest things that a business owner should consider when they're putting together a transition plan. What are things that they need to look at and know uh, as they're working through this uh, process? Well, let me give you a statistic that shows you how important this is. Uh, a survey was done last year, and uh, of that survey, they asked uh, uh, business owners, uh, a large group of them, how many of them really thought that the sale of their business was going to be a big part of their retirement. 68% said that it was. Hmm. No, not surprising, right? Yep. Uh, but when they were asked the question, how many had done anything about it, only 10% of it had done anything about it. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. So, so the idea is that if you think a large majority of your income is coming from it, then you would think you would start paying a little more attention to it. So, so you're right. The idea is that, that, that the issue may be, I just don't know where to start. So, you know, what should I, I look for? So let me, let me give you three things you should look for. The first thing is, is that you want to figure out what the value is and you want to determine, uh, what you might be able to get in the open market for a sale of your business. Uh, second is you want to determine exactly what your financial implications are of the transition. So what taxes would I pay on the sale? Could I mitigate or lower those taxes through some other processes? What other assets do I own? Rental real estate, 401ks, uh, other real estate or stock portfolios. If I look at those along with what I would get from the transition and I put them together, how much income would that generate? And that way you don't get real excited about selling your business. And then when you go to sell it, you don't have any idea where your income's coming from. If you're going to work back or you're going to create a partnership, then that number still needs to be done. But you need to look at it from a di you know, different perspective, obviously, with a transition being different. And it's a little bit different with family transitions because in family transitions, you have some things that you can do that you couldn't do with a complete stranger who's going to come in and buy your business because you're passing it to a family member and there's some gifting things that you can do to reduce or eliminate taxes. Mm -hmm. So you really need to, to look at the financial implications. And then the last thing is, is that you've got to have somebody who can put the deal together for you so it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. And that's where you can sit down and decide how you want the deal to go first. Then you take it to the legal experts and say, this is the direction that I want to go. And I've heard, you know, some horror stories in some of the healthcare guys that we've done transitions with where they were working on a transition and the legal fees were twenty five, thirty thousand dollars when it just doesn't need to be that way. It can be a lot less. And so it just makes, uh, you know, people very unhappy about having to spend that money. 
And there's one other thing that popped into my head. You know, we did a survey of a hundred business owners uh, back in the in the 2007 2008 period of time, and we talked to them. You know, about the top three things that were important to them that they need to look at. And I got two of them from what I just told you, two of the three. One is the value, two is the tax implications, and three is what's going to happen to their employees because a lot of them have employees that have been along with them a long time and they want to make sure they're taken care of and that, uh, you know, they supported them and made them a lot of money. Uh, but when you get to a transition, the point is that you really be looking at those three things. Gotcha. So, when people get this wrong, what are what are the biggest mistakes that people make when they screw this up? Well, I love that question because yeah. I'm always looking for the, you know, what not to do thing, not what yeah. to do. Because that, yeah, that's the big problem. Yep. Well, the the first thing is is that uh, there's I've seen many businesses sell with a one-page agreement. So you really don't have, you know, all the covenants and all the things that you need inside the agreement to fully protect you. Now, I'm not saying a term sheet has to be 75, 100 pages long for a buyout, but I certainly think that it should be some, some document that legally protects you, that allows you to put you in a position where, you know, if something goes wrong later is that you're protected. And that also applies to when you're carrying paperback, which a lot of people do. So I remember a uh, I met a guy who had just sold his business. It was a tire and wheel company, and he sold it for uh, three-quarters of a million dollars and took $200,000 cash and the balance in a note. There was no security agreement. There was no note other than just written into the agreement, and this guy defaulted on him in about three years. And so he had really no recourse but to go settle and, and get a lot less for what the business was originally worth. Now, oddly enough, he moved on and bought it from the next guy who bought it from him back, and he's back in a place where he's really doing well and at some point will sell it. And I guarantee you that you know, now that he's working with us, he's not going to do that. But that's the first thing. Let's make a deal. We don't really have all the written documents and those things. If you're going to work back with somebody or you're going to be involved with the business ongoing, there's no written expectations. You know, what do you want me to do as the, the, I was the CEO and now I'm in a place where I'm helping you in a different way. What are my, you know, duties? What do you expect me to do? What do I expect you to do? How are we going to, you know, work together in the future? So that's one that those guys have to, uh, really be worried about. And then the other thing is, 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 uh, again, the financial implications, which I mentioned is the number two thing of the three things you should do is that people just think, oh, you know, somebody else has got it and uh, it'll be okay and I'll have enough. If you don't really sit down and look at and run the numbers to see exactly where you're going to end up, I guarantee you, you are going to be one unhappy camper when the CPA tells you next year, oh, by the way, you have a capital gain and now you got to write a check for $350,000 to the Internal Revenue Service. Hmm. Good times, good times. That uh, made me sick. Just hearing that. So, um, well, look, I, and I, I can't state enough the whole thing about being clear about transition and what's expected on both sides from people, because I see this even with parents who transition out of a business and, and leave that business to their kids and their kids think, hey, mom and dad's going to stick, mom or dad's going to stick around and they're going to help. And then, you know, dad's just like, hey, I'm out. And and then, you know, the kids are frustrated because they thought they were going to have more support from their parents and everything else. I mean, it's just a huge issue uh, that I see from not just having those expectations laid out. So I've, I've definitely seen that a plenty 
um, with the clients that I've worked with for sure. Well, there, you know, there, there are two really quick stories that I might tell that have yeah. to do with uh, why it's important for you to be in a position to do this as soon as possible, or when you become aware of it, at least start paying attention to it. I've got a, a new client in Michigan whose son is coming in, and they're going to gift him the business over time. And even though you know, I'm a big fan of hard work, and I think that it's great that families can pass on successful businesses, you're now transitioning a, you know, a, a, a high-gross business now to somebody who's a millennial who is in a position where they may, may or may not be ready for that business. Right. And if you start gifting it to them and, uh, you know, you don't have the proper uh, guidance in place with them, there's a really good possibility that because of lack of experience, even if they're just running it the way they're supposed to, they're not going to see certain things and it's not going to go as well. Now, I know they're phasing him in over time, which also is the other thing that if you can do is is excellent. That's one of the pitfalls that you said what not to do. Well, what not to do is not not phase somebody in over time. Um, Did you just use a double negative on my I used, podcast? I used a double negative on your podcast. That's right. Unbelievable. Okay, keep go. going. Keep going. And and so the the other th- other story is that uh, I met this uh, gentleman who owns a, a liquor store, a bar, a beer distributorship. Uh, I mean, two or three real estate pieces in the block in, in Pittsburgh. And I mean, just a wonderful man. And he's got his two sons working in it. And one of them is the people person and the other doesn't want to deal with people. And he takes care of the business. And dad's got this vision about where he's going and what he wants to do. And he's been told he needs to sit down and figure it out with the boys. So he took the boys to their accountant and attorney, had a conversation. And the boys just thought that he had put it all in place. So if something either happened to him and mom or uh, when it was time and he was going to walk into the sunset, that uh, it was all taken care of. And when I got ready to leave, he pulled me aside and said, I just want you to know I haven't really done anything about this. And that was two, ye- that was two years ago. Okay. So, so I said to him, well, you know, if you get hit by the purple bus, what's going to happen to you? Well, you know, I've got some of my estate plan put together, but I'm not really sure how much, but it should, it'll be okay. I mean, they'll just get it. Well, that, he's left his boys a mess if something should happen. Right. And and if the worst case scenario is absolute worst case scenario is when you build this business and you make it profitable and you you spend your life's work getting it where exactly where you want it and it's doing well and you're supporting family. And now you've got employees and people who are counting on you and you're just completely not thinking in terms of your planning. And then something happens to you and, and everybody suffers. And the only person that's going to win in that is the government and the local you know, tax from the standpoint of if there's probate and those kinds of things in that state. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. So, um, look, this is just such an important conversation because it speaks to the vision and it speaks to something in a concept that I talk about of, of total experience design is how do we build a business by design, not a business by default. And part of that process is what do I do with my business in the future? What does the future hold for me? When is the time to start thinking about that? The time is now because unfortunately with a lot of things in your business, the time that you need it isn't the time to start thinking about it. The time that you want uh, funding uh, for your business is not the time that you need it uh, because now you haven't done all the preparation of your financials, everything else. The time to hire a new employee is not when you need it. 
because then you're too busy to train and hire and uh, get the right person and typically you'll settle. So this is another one of those things that when it comes to transitions, it's not when you need it. It is before that so that when you do want it, not when you need it, but when you want it, you are ready to do that in a productive way. So, Neil, I thought you shared some just awesome thoughts and processes for moving forward with that. So, hey, I really appreciate that. Neil, any final things on business transitions that we missed or didn't talk about that we should have? Uh, You know, I I think we've covered quite a bit. Uh, I just want to really stress how important what you said is key to every business owner is that, your business out there, every business owner's business is going to transition, and it's going to do it one way or the other. And there, you don't have any, you know, you don't know when it's coming. You hope that you can control it, uh, and that's what we really try to tell our clients. And I know you're saying the same thing. It's so much better to be able to control the in the outcome of how you're going to exit your business uh, and get, you know, the things that as many of the things that you possibly want from the sale of your business versus just sitting back and taking whatever you get. So the key is is that you've got to do that planning. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, So make sure you get in touch with Neil if you want to learn more about this, talk with him. Go to Get Equity, and that's equity with an I, uh, .com. If you go to the show notes, you'll get more information there. But, Neil, appreciate you sharing your wisdom in this area with with our listeners today. My pleasure. You have a great day. All right, so welcome everyone to the New Work Revolution podcast. This is your host, Brandon Allen, and I have Neil Insko from Get Equity with us again today, and we're going to talk in our final piece of the business financial series, uh, talking about investing. This is a topic that comes up with a lot of people that I talk with, and today specifically, uh, we're going to talk about what do you do with surplus money in your business that you have from an investing standpoint. And I think for a lot of people, this is a, this is a conversation that just perplexes people. They're just not sure what to do with their money. So Neil, for you, where does it start? I mean, when, when, when someone's a business owner and they're trying to invest, um, for me, I mean, it's different for a business owner than it is for your average consumer, but they get the same advice than the average consumer does who works at a W-2 wage job. So where, where does a business owner start, in your opinion? Well, we're talking about investing surplus money of a business. And most business owners take their surplus and they put it back into the business. Because if your business is consistently producing uh, a high profit margin percentage-wise each year, uh, frankly, that's one of, the, one of the best places to invest, right? I mean, if you could, you could take your surplus of $50,000 a year, let's say, as an example, or 100000 and you could stick it back in your business and create a 32% return for yourself over the next year through marketing and promotion, you know, that's what we want to do. So oftentimes, business owners will really ramp up their, their businesses and continue to put money back in its business uh, surplus money. Now, when you get to the point where your business is growing and you you have what you need to live on and you're paying your taxes and you've created a lifestyle and your business is consistently uh, creating profit for yourself, then you want to take that surplus that you're not going to put back into your business and you want to be able to position it for for the best return that it can get. Now, the minute you do that, then you become like everybody else who has money in some form who's looking to try to find the best place to leverage and, and to get a rate of return. Now, I'm a big Warren Buffett guy. I'm also a recovering stockbroker. So 
I'm, I have a little bit different take on the markets and investing than most people do. So uh, I may be a little against the grain in this section of this podcast because I feel a certain way about investing that maybe is different than the large majority of brokerage firms and brokers and people who are out there. And the reason I am is because I've been through just about every type of investment in 30 years uh, that you could imagine, including offshore and other countries and uh, you name it. And Warren Buffett's rule is rule number one is never lose the money. And rule number two is, you know, refer to rule number one. And so the idea is that if if you can take your surplus money and you can put it somewhere where you can invest it and you can maintain the principal versus the principal being at risk uh, due to market conditions, then you're going to be in a better place. I mean, it, it is really truly if you look at where we've been in the last 16 years or so versus where we were in the 16, you know, before that, 16 to 17, is that we've had uh, two serious corrections in the stock market in you know, 00 through 02 and 07 through 09, which equated to a 45% twice downturn or loss of value in the market. So if you were invested starting in 2000, and many people were, uh, because of the previous 16 years, you did exceptionally well, but you lost 45% of it and then gained 45% back up to 07 and then lost it again through 09. And now, uh, you know, in the current situation, you're, you're back up and above, probably above even by one or 2%. The problem we have is the average investor doesn't really know how to do the things that they need to do. It isn't about making money or losing money. It's simply about being able to control uh, and mitigate your risk. And that's why uh, so many people who got whipsawed in the market in these last two corrections I was just talking about just basically gave up and just said, I'll just leave it in cash. It's because they couldn't really stomach the ups and downs and the volatility and their brokers telling them things like, hang in there, don't worry, it'll come back. Well, unfortunately, you're in for the long haul, Neil. that's right. Yeah, you're in for the long haul. Well, if the long haul is the next seven years where you were counting on that for income and now it's half as much as it was and your 401k is a 201k, you're, you're kind of in a tough spot. So I really think that if you can control and mitigate your risk and that if you can look at not losing money, uh, you won't have long recovery periods and you'll be just in a much better place long term. And the mathematics statistics prove it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm a business owner. I, I've got surplus. I, I don't want to risk my money. I want to be, you know, I want to be smart about it. Uh, what do I do? Well, there's first of all, you have to figure in what form do you want it in. So. If your accountant, and most of them do, say, look, you're making money now, don't pay the tax on it now, throw it in a qualified plan, 401k, SEP, defined benefit plan, something like that, where it'll grow tax deferred and one day you'll, you'll pay the tax on it. And that's a really good strategy from the standpoint of not paying the tax now. But you have deferred the tax. You have not completely gotten rid of the tax. And unfortunately, what they're not telling you is the end game. And so the end game in that particular case is that if I took $10,000 and put it into a retirement plan and I did it every year for 30 years, I would have put away 300000 growing at a 6% rate on average. 
uh, it would be worth about 850000 roughly, a little short of that, in the 30th year. Well, go back to my original uh, contribution of 300000 If I'd paid the tax at 30%, I would have taken 90000 and given it to the government over 10 years or 30 years, and I would have stuck $210,000 in my pocket. Well, now I've got this $850,000 asset where I put it all in, and now I have over a quarter million dollars in tax. So all I've done is just increase the tax on the asset. And so it's kind of like art, man. I go to turn it on or sell it and get something for it. Oh, my God, I had no idea what it's worth. So you have to look at whether or not that's a comfortable thing for you to do. Or are you going to pay the tax, and then you're going to take the after-tax money, and you're going to do something with it? And so both of those are good things to do. You just have to figure out which one of those you want to do and what increments you want to do it. And once you get it in there, then it's a matter of looking at where it is you can invest the money. Now, I'm a big fan of registered investment advisors. Uh, the difference between a registered investment advisor and a broker is essentially the broker is kind of like the local guy who, uh, you know, runs the meat market. And he basically is going to tell you about all the beef. And uh, he's going to say, hey, you know, the, the loin, you know, chops from uh, Venezuela are really great. And, you know, you should get them or the skirt steak's amazing or, you know, the, I, I just got in this uh, really great uh you know, filet that says, you know, thick as my head and, you, you know, you should throw it in and this is what you do with it. He's going to sell you meat and he's not going to say to you, well, you know, hey, Brandon, you're looking a little, you know, got a little fat on you there, but maybe you should, uh, you know, you should get some salmon, you know, or maybe you should eat some salads or something. He's not going to do that. Yeah, brokers are just going to sell you product. That's all they're going to do. And everybody out there who sells product and everybody almost who says they're financial planners are just product guys. Right. And it's the, wherever you go, I mean, every brokerage firm is the same versus the RIA who has a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for Brandon. So, you know, that that person may say to you, hey, you know, go get a salad, go get salmon, go look at something different. In our case, we're looking at, you know, real estate, first trustees as an example, gold and silver. We're looking at uh, maybe partnerships in real estate, oil and gas. We're looking at pre-IPO stock. We're looking at a variety of things. But when it boils down to it, you've got to figure out exactly how much risk you want to take and how you want to control it. The RIAs are guys that are going to watch your money no matter what. And here's the thing that absolutely drives me crazy. And it's a little thing that most people don't know, and that is that all these brokers out there who are selling you these mutual funds are backtesting everything and telling you this is what happened, and over time this is what they did, and you're going to be fine. Just hang in there. But what they don't realize is, is that the SEC enacted a regulation called 35 d Dash one, And that says that if you own an American fund stock fund and you're the manager of that fund and you're American funds, the SEC requires you to keep 80% of the money in that fund in stocks because you said it was a stock fund. And that's at all times. So when the market corrects in 07 through 09 and it goes down 45%, they can't get out more than 20% into cash. And they've got to write it all the way down. They don't have a choice. The registered investment advisor is not like that. He can see the correction coming. He can make course corrections. And he can put you in a position where you, know, you can save uh, the losses 
and maybe you have a smaller loss, 5 or 8%, or in some cases, we have some managers we work with who in 07, 08, and 09 were up double-digit returns each of those years because they went against the market. So this is a person that's going to look and see what's going on versus somebody who's just going to say, you got to hang in there. So I'm not a big proponent of mutual funds from the standpoint of brokers and hanging in there, primarily because of 35D-1, uh, and it's important. Most people just don't know that. So my question to anybody who sits down with their broker, I would say two things. So in the next correction, what are you going to do to keep my money from losing 45%. And then, by the way, are you aware of 35D-1? And if you really want to figure it out yourself, go to uh, online, find the, uh, the symbol ticker of your particular mutual fund, and then go over to uh, uh, any of the online uh, forms where you can find out what the chart looked like for that particular mutual fund and what it did between 07 and 09 and look at what it did. And I guarantee you that, you know, 99.9% .9 of them were down pretty significantly. Matter of fact, most of the mutual funds were down about 55 to 60% during that time. So the answer to your question is, is that we really like registered investment advisors. Now, if you really want safety and security, uh, there are two guaranteed investments to never lose money no matter what other than cash. And that's equity indexed annuities and cash value life insurance. Now, I know I'm probably getting a boo and a hiss from everybody out there who's listening. <laughs> that, oh, my God, you know, those, those things, they've reared their ugly heads. But, you know, I've been through four corrections in my career. And the last two, both of those never lost a dime. And we were in a position where significantly the assets are up a third long term. And there's so much flexibility with those. Uh, but you've got to understand how those work, and you've got to understand whether or not they're right for you, and you've got to make sure that when you invest in them that you find the ones that are going to make sense and fit your overall goals and objectives and what you want to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. I love that. I mean, those are, those are definitely some ideas. Where, where do you think... What do you? What are the biggest challenges that you see that business owners run into when they're creating their investment strategy, and and what are some tips to maybe overcome some of those challenges? Well, the first thing is is that uh, you know you have, like I said, you got to determine from your tax implications where you want to put your money, whether it makes sense to do either before tax or after tax. Uh, secondly, is is that almost all employees, employers who have employees that want to keep them, that want to have a 401k, um, they're all stuck for the majority of them. There are very few companies out there that offer uh, funds that uh, will take care of the downside protection. So you're pretty much just along for the ride and the volatility that's going to go up and down. And even your employees, even if they're younger, the problem is, is that uh, yeah, they may have more time on their side, but again, mathematics show us that if you can mitigate the losses, you have more money long term. The other thing is, is that when you have employees, is that they may not want to pay the tax at the other end. And so when you look at the effect of taxes on the end of a 401k, many of them may want to consider, uh, you know, converting those to Roths and being able to look at Roth IRAs as an option and alternative. And so that's another you know big key, and I talked about that earlier. The important thing, too, is consistency and continuing to make sure you put money away on a regular basis because 
even if you got a small rate of return over a long period of time on a deductible basis, you don't really need a large rate of return compounded to really accumulate a lot of money over time. And then there's the guys that start late. And so what do you do when you start late? You can't tell whether or not, you know, which investment's going to be up 20 or 30 percent, and then you're taking a lot of risk there. So what do you do to determine uh, the best way for you if you're starting late? And that, again, is start your accumulation process. Uh, it's also, I'm a big believer in business owners having executive bonus. I mean, Fortune 500 companies give deferred compensation and executive bonus to their employees, you know, the guys that are the best of the best that run their divisions. And if that person hangs around for a long time with, say, a Johnson & Johnson or a uh, an IBM, then they reap the rewards of money that's been set aside for them uh, because it's like a golden handcuff. Well, a business owner already has a golden handcuff until he sells, right? He's the guy or girl. So, you know, all we're doing is we're just plugging in what the Fortune 500 companies will do. And those the issues with those are that you can exclude employees. And it also is a way of being able to create a succession plan uh, using a deferred comp or executive bonus should something happen to you. So there's some crossovers in certain types of investments that can work. But in my estimation, it's a matter of sitting down and looking at what you have, protecting what you have, controlling and mitigating the risk, and then uh, and then finding things that are going to help you get there. Love it. So, Neil, on investing, next steps for people. If I'm someone who's listening to this and I don't have any support, I don't have the right kind of support in this area, and I'm looking – Kind of what are my next steps? What are some things that I should look at or consider as I dive into this and, and start to get my arms around it? Well, the government has funneled us pretty much since the 1970s into self-direction. And they've done that primarily to generate, in my opinion, if you read, a, anybody wants to have a really good read about how the markets work, uh, I gave up my licenses and, and went the RIA way. Uh, and uh, looked at insurance uh, as a more safer safe haven because I read Rick Buter's book, uh, The Great Wall Street Scam, where he talks about this process of how we've been funneled since the 70s by the government saying they're going to protect us, but no matter what, markets go up or down and the fees still come out and long term we suffer. So if you really want to dive in and you're, you know, you want to figure it out, that's, that's the book to go read. Now, there's some common sense things. So, and I know these are going to sound kind of bizarre, but, but they're sort of what I, I tell our clients. First of all, you know, nobody ever went broke making a profit. So the idea is that when you get one, you take it. Too many people fall in love with a stock or a mutual fund and, you know, they don't get out of it or don't see, they'll think it's going to last forever. And you can't hold on to it from emotion because the stock or mutual fund doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about Brandon or Neil. What it cares about is nothing. We got to make sure that we pay attention to it. The loss of the principal is more important than the gain. I mentioned that earlier. Um, no single investment is better than another, but you need to understand what you're investing in. So take the time to really get to a point where you can ask people questions. Look, tell me the thing I need to be things I need to be most concerned about when we're looking at this. What is what are what is my what is my potential gain? What's my risk? What can happen at the other end? How long do I have to hang on to it? You want to know everything about it. And then look at other things other than traditional stocks and bonds. I mean, there's lots of opportunities out there. Uh, although many people have I talked to through the real estate years over the last 20 years, 
they've said, oh, my, I'll just go out and buy a whole bunch of real estate and I'll flip it or I'll, I'll put myself in a position to create you know, income from it. And then they find out later they hate it and they've had all kinds of problems and lose a significant amount of money. I think the day trader guys these days still are in your first year, you lose about $50,000. So you have a $50,000 loss to start off with on average. So your traditional stocks and bonds and mutual funds, yeah, are great. But look at some of the other things you know, that are out there. Nobody knows which direction the market's going to go. You know, over time, they're going to grow, but, you know, we can't predict that. Nobody can. And so uh, we got to look at which ones are going to grow and we got to participate, but, but be careful. And then, you know, take the least risky approach to comp- accomplishing your goal. So if you just can't stand the volatility, and I have several clients that are like that, then we invest in very conservative things and they're happy with, a, you know, a 3 to 5% rate of return and they don't want to take a, a higher return. And uh, so it's important to look at that. Investment should always include uh, forward thinking. So we got to look at a forward basis of where things are going to be. You wouldn't drive home by looking in the rearview mirror, right? You right. want to see what's what's going on. So you need to be looking at what's happening in the marketplace and, and you know where you can take advantage of it. And then we advocate a, like a 90-10 or an 80-20 portfolio. 80 to 90% is safe and secure, can't lose it. And then we look for emerging companies at 10 to 20%. And we basically are in a position where we're going to gamble with that money. And we know that we're going to, some of the investments are going to be home runs and others we're going to strike out. So it's really important to make sure that the majority of the, uh, the principle is completely maintained. Nice. Very nice. All right. Well, good. That's, I mean, this is such a, a big topic. There's so many things that you could discuss, so I appreciate your ability to synthesize this into some of the goodies that I think is so important for people to uh, listen to, understand, and hopefully inspires those uh, people who are listening to this that aren't doing anything and don't really have a plan to get more intentional with their plan so that they are not only building for today but also building for the future. So, Neil, anything else that we missed uh, around investing and uh, investing your surplus uh, that we should uh, cover before we wrap up today? Well, one of the things that a business owner two, uh, is two things. One of the, the first one is that one of the things that business owners need to be looking at is how they can set their surplus aside and invest it, but still have some ability to go get it if they need it. And if you could create pockets, say three pockets with your surplus, uh, First pocket would be maybe 20% that you would use in the next 12 months. Uh, the second would be 20% that you might need in the next 12 to 36 months. And then the 60% of the 100% balance would go towards more long-term, 20, 30 years out. And so if you can think in terms of every month putting in your cash flow compartmentalization, the ability to pull that out and put it into those pockets – then if you ever got into trouble and you needed some money for your business, you can go into 20% one or 20% two, you know, pocket or bucket, not disrupt the long-term money that you have. So it's important from a cash flow compartmentalization standpoint that you look at investing and whether or not you would need the capital. And then the last thing is, God, for God's sakes, guys, everybody needs to wake up. Recovery is not growth. And people who think it is, it cracks me up. And, you know, you lose... 25 per, use 20% in the market, you have to make 25 to get back to even. You have $1,000 and it, it loses 50% in the first year and then makes 50% in the second year, you're still down 25%. 
So let's think in terms of, uh, of consistently growing our assets. And, and again, recovery is just not growth. Absolutely. That, man, that's, that's huge. That is uh, such a big concept to remember. So awesome. Well, Neil, thank you again for joining us. This was super helpful. If people want more information about what you guys have to offer, where do they go? Well, they can go to our webpage, which is uh, getequity.com, and that's equity with an I, G-E-T-E-Q-U-I-T-I.com. They certainly can contact us here at the office at 800-845-2895. And if they want to reach me and talk to me, and even a business owner want to call me and say, hey, I heard your podcast, and, and what do you think? And let's get into a conversation. You know, we have a Discover Equity call where we can – you know, at no obligation, we'll talk to you about what we think you should do. You can reach me personally at 858-344-5110 or neil at getequity.com. Nice, nice. Very cool. Well, Neil, thanks again for joining us. And guys, as you're listening to this, if you do not have an intentional strategy around what you're doing with your money from an investment standpoint, it's time to start diving into that and really looking at that. So, um, again, Neil, thanks for joining us today, and uh, it was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you, Brandon. All right, guys. Well, that's it for uh, this installment of the New Work Revolution podcast. I look forward to talking to you again soon uh, on another episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Work Revolution podcast on newworkrevolution.com. Until next time, take your business leadership to the next level and join the revolution.